The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome back to another episode of Francis Watch, sponsored by Novus Ordo Watch. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and with us, as always, is His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, and Father Anthony Chicada, Associate Pastor of St. Richard the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. Your Excellency, Father, thank you for joining us. Nice to be here again. Yes, once again, thank you. Your Excellency, we were talking before the show that there's not as much news uh, for this episode, it could be that even Francis takes vacations. Well, he certainly well, takes vacations from thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I just haven't seen too much lately that is anything different from what he has said before. That, that's, you know, he hasn't come out with any real, let's say, Nova sort of bombs uh, in the past, you know, six months uh, that I can tell. You know, there's... Uh, it's his usual stuff. So, you know, it, it may not uh, be as interesting as usual, let's put it that way. But, of course, uh, he runs on, on like a loop. His, his, uh, in addition to being loopy, his brain runs on a loop with some of these ideas. And mm-hmm. um, they uh, keep on sh- showing up, as uh, Bishop Sanborn pointed out. And, uh, you know, maybe it's a question of uh, just sort of conditioning the people by saying the same thing over and over again. And I think that's uh, something beneficial to reflect on, Father. One of the things I've been doing this season for Francis Watches, I've been going back and I've been listening to old Francis Watches. A lot of our listeners may not realize we've got almost three dozen Francis Watches. And listening to you and His Excellency talk about these issues over and over, there's there's the point of repetition of Catholic doctrine. Well, that never gets old. But what's interesting is he continues to repackage his errors in all of these different ways. But as you say, it's it's on a loop of sorts. And one of the generators of these loops is, I guess the Novus Ordo sect would call him Saint Paul VI. And I wanted to read the formula for his so-called canonization. For the honor of the Blessed Trinity, the exaltation of the Catholic faith, and the increase of the Christian life by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the holy apostles Peter and Paul and our own, after due deliberation and frequent prayer for divine assistance, and having sought the counsel of many of our brother bishops, we declare and define Blessed Paul the Sixth and a number of other names to be saints, and we enroll them among the saints, decreeing that they are to be venerated as such by the whole church, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now, Excellency, we've talked about this on multiple episodes, not just for Francis Watch, but um, for Drustration. The recognize and resist school will tell us that canonizations are not infallible, but what does language like this denote for Catholics? It denotes a definition that, that declare and define is, 
it's like a red light of definition. And there's it, it, it's it's a blinking red light. This is a definition. This is binding. Declare and define. We declare, and also all of that language about the authority of Christ, the apostles, and our own. If you look at other documents of the church, that that precedes a definition. Pius the twelfth, Pius the ninth. That this is like classic definition language, and uh, you know some might say, well, you know, this is not contained in Revelation. But it still comes under the the power of the church to in, uh, infallibly declare, in as much as it is a part of the church's role in uh, promulgating and assuring the sacred liturgy and the and God's worship. See, so the the church cannot propose to us as someone in heaven who, in fact, is in hell. And where the church would be offering masses in honor of a damned soul. See, so by that reasoning, it is, and all theologians agree with this, except some, I would call, two-bit unknown theologians in the past. All theologians agree, and it's common doctrine, that this is infallible. That is, that it is infallibly true that this, whoever is canonized, is in heaven. And that we must believe it. And, and that we must venerate this person as in heaven. There is no way to wriggle out of that from that language. And if, if, you, if you're trying to, you are deceiving yourself because you know better, because this is so obvious. Yeah, all you have to do is compare this text with the previous texts that were uh, issued by the pre-Vatican II popes. And uh, this uh, confirms it. Uh, the it's the the same sort of language to declare and define that this this person is uh, is a saint. There's no change in that. And what has happened, or what happens in the R and R camp, is that they try to find, as we said, a way to uh, wiggle out of this as an full uh, definition. And uh, in so doing, they, uh, it's, it's, it's another uh, brick that they're taking away from the, the uh, edifice of true ta- Catholic doctrine on the nature of the papacy, the authority of the papacy, and on the uh, infallibility of the church as well. Uh, so they, they uh, use this, they, they uh, try to get out of this particular requirement to uh, back out of it. Uh, one thing that maybe I could ask His Excellency about is this, that uh, a lot of the arguments that uh, are made against the infallibility of these canonizations by the, the R&R camp are based on an understanding of uh, the way that the uh, teaching of Vatican I uh, applies to ex-cathedra statements by the Roman pontiff. But would you say, Your Excellency, that this is not this type of declaration has to, is concerned not necessarily so much with the uh, ex cathedra pronouncements by the Roman Pontiff, but as uh, rather as uh, something that's pertaining to the infallibility of the Church in general, that the Roman Pontiff simply expresses that. Although, I mean, he has the supreme authority to do it, and only he does. So in that sense, it's related. But the, the, uh, 
yeah, he, he's speaking in, a, in the name of the whole church. But it, I mean, the whole reason for this is that the the he has the power to prescribe for the church liturgy and worship, and that falls under the uh, disciplinary infallibility. And the with the reasoning that the church cannot lead us to hell, and cannot offer to us persons that are are unworthy for veneration. I mean, it's very simple. I mean, I don't think you need to think about it too much. I mean, if the church does not have that power, then it's a false church. If it can lead us to hell, then we might as well forget about this church and and look for something else. Because uh, you know if. If all of these saints that are in our calendar could be in hell, you know, that, that the church could be wrong about this and they could be in hell, I mean, what are we doing? What kind of a religion is this? I always say again and again that the key to the Catholic Church is the divine assistance to it. If you take out the divine assistance to it and the infallibility of the canonization of saints is part of that, if you take that out of the church, the whole theological structure of the church falls down in an instant, just like the 9-11 buildings. It all just flops to the ground. So if you start saying, well, we could be deceived in this, we could be deceived in that, well, this may not be true and so forth. Concerning things that are de declared and defined by the church, you're through. You, you, you undermine the whole Catholic church. I think what's striking about the language for me, Your Excellency, is the phrase decreeing that they are to be venerated as such by the whole church. So who are you to say, well, not for me, or that's a nice opinion, or if this man who you say is the vicar of Jesus Christ on earth, he says they are to be venerated as such by the whole church, and you say, well, that's optional. It just right. is so that, strange. That, well, he might be wrong, and... And it was an imprudent um, canonization. You know, that's what a, that's what SSPX was a very imprudent canonization. And well, imprudent or not, <laughs> you know, because it is true that the Pope is not uh, protected from imprudence. That's true, but imprudent or not, it's a canonization. So that really says nothing and means nothing. But we all know that they reject Paul the Sixth as a saint because he suspended Archbishop Lefebvre, who's the, the saint of saints, and therefore he could not be any kind of a holy man. Without, we know the way they think, and that's it. I mean, how could you be a saint if you, if you suspended Archbishop Lefebvre and suppressed the society of St. Pius X, which they don't believe in either? Well, you know, again, invalid acts. You've covered this. Pope. You've covered this, I think, in some sermons as well as, as I said, previous episodes that we've had, including talking about a specific show that we just did on canonizations, that mm -hmm. they get very hung up on process. So uh, mm -hmm. Father Chikata dealt with this with the, was the Tridentine Mass validly suppressed myth, that there is this idea that since they've gotten rid of the devil's advocate, and since they've gotten rid of this extra miracle, therefore the process is what safeguards the infallibility and the ineffectability of the church, and that's not it. The, the, the Pope could get up and, and name someone as a saint without any process whatsoever, is that correct? Correct, that's absolutely correct, and that's all covered in the theology books <laughs> that, you know, the, the anti-infallibility people said in the 19th century, well, the Pope needs to study 
the you know before he defines, and then that's true, he does. But what if the Pope doesn't study enough and responds that that the assistance of Christ to the Church is such that that even if he doesn't study enough, it is infallible. So you could say that insufficient uh, research has been done. Uh, and therefore, uh, it's it's uh, you know that's SSVX would say insufficient research has been done. Therefore, it's dubious or, but that's just not true. It's it's again what the heretics said. For example, the Church accepted all of the local canonizations from centuries ago, which did not go through the the process that Benedict the Fourteenth set up in the mid middle of the 18th century. That's when this this process was set up. But the church accepted the local canonizations of the various bishops and, and other holy people in various dioceses as, as saints, and they're in the martyrology, and, and uh, they are, they are uh, in, in this, you know, universal calendar. And again, you know, did they all go through that process? No. But if the church promulgates them as saints, then they are the object of our veneration. And well, the, again, if you take this away from the church, you ruin the church. Yes, and the question uh, here, you know, which, which comes through the way that you lay out their argument, is that who decides what the process is? Uh, is it the vicar of Christ on earth, who decides what the process is, or is it, um, you know, me and my easy chair in Westchester? Menzingen. Yeah, or, or uh, yeah, in Menzingen. So you end up, in effect, with sort of uh, canon law Protestantism, where that uh, what the Pope prescribes and what he, uh, he promulgates is not uh, binding on members of the church or to submit to it, but they um, uh, subject it to sort of private uh, uh, private examination and decide they, they sift through it, as Father Schmidtberger would say, and see what they accept and see what they reject. And that turns the whole thing on its head uh, as well. Another... Protestant. Uh, yeah, yeah it's, you end up, as, it's canon law Protestantism. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the other thing that uh, you end up with, or uh, that I noticed in the polemics against the canonization of Paul VI, is that even supposedly intelligent people who, who are opposed to the canonization of Paul VI, who are part of the R&R camp, uh, that the arguments that they make have uh, no foundations in terms of any sources in uh, traditional Catholic theology. It's just a, a, there was a one article that I read by Professor Lamont, and he was very much opposed to this canonization of Paul VI. And uh, th- there was one uh, citation in the article to uh, Salaveri's treatment on the, the question of the canonization of saints. But then this guy went on to say, well, these theologians didn't really understand what papal infallibility meant. And uh, he gave no, absolutely no sources to prove his statements. And uh, he uh, just um, uh, went along making one statement after another without really showing how it was somehow 
sourced or or what he had to say was somehow sourced or uh, came out of uh, traditional Catholic theological teaching. And that's because they can't. Uh, It isn't there. Well, it's it's just so arbitrary, Father. And I I just, I I think to myself, I'm thinking about St. Philomena. St. Philomena didn't go through the process. So how how do we know that St. Philomena is a saint? Yeah, well, Uh, she got kicked out by John the 23rd. I don't know if you know that. Oh, yes. Well, this is the thing is, uh, then you're resisting John the 23rd's kicking her out and you're keeping her in. (laughs) Right. This this whole thing of, okay, Padre Pio is a saint, but this person isn't, uh, it's it's so strange to me. I, I understand, obviously, people who have an understanding of who saintly people are, unlike Paul VI, have a lot of sympathy for, for Padre Pio being, let's say, considered a saint, but we don't have a process by which to make Padre Pio a saint at the moment. And we can still we can still venerate him as someone who was a great example and and shared holy thoughts and ideas for us to to adhere to. But this idea of picking and choosing, it should strike even a Novus Ordo uh, someone who goes to the Novus Ordo, someone who belongs to the Novus Ordo sect, is very strange to pick and choose which saints they want to venerate and which saints they don't. It just is very strange. It's known as Protestantism. If you became a canon law Protestant, you would understand it completely. You said speaks, you decide. <laughs> you've you've both said this in different ways and in different sermons, but you've pointed out that the urgency and necessity of canonizing Paul the Sixth and John the Twenty Third is to baptize and canonize the council and to institutionalize the revolution within the church. And it's important for people who aren't certain, aren't clear about Paul the Sixth. Paul the Sixth was the man who finished off the work started by John the 23rd. So he promulgated all of the, the documents of Vatican II. He promulgated the new mass. He promulgated the new sacraments. He abolished the index forbidden books. He abolished the oath against modernism. He presided over the largest laicization of priests and nuns and religious in the history of Catholicism. He also instituted a reform of the Curia. And I don't think that's the kind of reform you would be interested in, Your Excellency. No, he he modern he, he reformed it according to modernist principles. He, he already got rid of the Inquisition because the Holy Office uh, was the Holy Office of the Inquisition. That was its full name, and of course that had to go. And now it, it was the CDF, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which is the Congregation for the Doctrine of the of the Modernists. And and you know it it, it well its history is is abominable. Ever since he he uh, he just took a huge hypodermic needle full of modernism and stuck it into every aspect of the church, and he is principally responsible for for the debacle that we have today in the Catholic Church, Paul the Sixth, that reign of 1963 to 1978. He did all the dirty work, and really the ones after that, John Paul II and Ratzinger, and now uh, this creature. Uh, it, the, are really just carrying out things that he did and and and, and set down. He he really blew up the old church and founded something entirely different. Uh, and um, so I mean, of all of the the people, not to canonize, but rather to condemn, it, it is Paul the Sixth. And he was the one, by the way. John the Twenty Third on his deathbed said, "You must elect Montini, that is Paul the Sixth, because he's the only one that will continue the council." So in 1963, 
the council could have been shut down. And little footnote, Padre Pio told the the prelates coming to him to see him to shut down the council. That's what he told them. Mm. Uh, but in 1963, that council could have been shut down. And even in 1978, there was a possibility of reversing Vatican II. And as you know, Cardinal Siri almost was elected. And because the, uh, the liberals went into a, uh, a panic the night before, when Siri would have passed the next day, they went into a panic and joined forces because they were split. And so they joined forces and put the crown on Wojtyla, who was John Paul II, uh, you know, a super liberal and, and modernist. So Paul VI, uh, that, that reign of Paul VI is really critical for the church because it, uh, it, it could have been turned back even at that point. But uh, so, you know, it, this is just a way, uh, and it's so absurd that you can, you know, destroy the Catholic church uh, uh, practically and get canonized for it. I mean, this is just high comedy. Uh, you know, it, it just you make, it makes you laugh that these people are, are saints that did all of this damage. I mean, it just is something to laugh about. That's all. Well, I, I think in honor of, of that laughter, uh, Novus Ordo Watch composed a, a litany in honor of uh, the so-called St. Paul VI. And I have to say, it was, it's quite, quite a good litany. But some highlights for me was, were Star of David, uh, Tower of Babel. <laughs> Notor- notorious offspring of Lucifer, uh, right. putrid lily, and uh, father mm-hmm. of apostates. <laughs> That's all very accurate. Oh, yeah, uh, indeed. Well, yeah. as that woman in Rome uh, said to us that, you know, he, he was a monster. He really was a monster. Yeah, I so, think, uh, but I think the, the formula, you know, if there was a public formula... The thing to do on Novus Ordo Watch would be to play that and then have laughter in the background. That would be a, you know, a very appropriate message to send, that just somebody laughing his head off as, as you know, Paul VI. And then a few pictures of Paul VI in the Indian outfits and all of the other crazy things he did. You know, the, uh, yeah, he, would, yeah, he, he was an ec- ecumenical maniac and uh, started all of that stuff. Well, preparing the way for JP2. I don't think there was a single good thing that he did. The, the single good thing I give to John Paul too is that he cleaned up the front of St. Peter's Basilica. So, you know, for tourism's sake and you know, general dignity of the basilica, I give him credit for that. Everything else he did was evil. But Paul VI didn't even do that. I don't think there's a yeah, single I good thing. I can't think of one thing. <laughs> well, it might have it might have been all that smoke of Satan that uh, dirtied the front of the basilica. <laughs> Might have been coming out. Yeah. I suppose uh, I, would, I would end this segment by proposing to our listeners who are uncertain about the current situation of the churches: if you do not accept Paul the Sixth as a saint of your church, by what authority do you reject the formula of the man you consider to be Pope, saying that these are to be venerated as such by the whole church? Mm-hmm. I think that that's a good question that they should pose themselves. And I think if you, if the listeners have listened to how His Excellency and Father have, have answered those objections, I think they'll be very good food for thought. 
You know, a good uh, idea for maybe a show uh, would be a special show, actually, on Paul the Sixth, in which the uh, the accusation, the book of accusation against him, put out by the uh, Abbe de Nantes in 1973, I think it was, quoting with all sorts of documentation all of the things he said and did uh, that were scandalous and heretical. Uh, when you really add those things up, that is the book that made me a Sadovacantist. Because I labored for years under the idea that it's the bad bishops who are doing all of this nasty stuff in the church, and Paul VI, being the Pope, is you know free of heresy, and you know certainly he doesn't assent to this stuff. I labored under that for years, but when I read that, that was in 1973. I thought, oh my goodness, I had no idea. And uh, that might, you know, or or to put up some of those quotes on on uh, Novus Ordo Watch would be good for people to understand just what kind of a human being he was. It was yes. horrible. Well, again, New York State, I think it's particularly helpful for people like myself who were not ever alive during the time of Paul VI. So it's very important for us to study that history and understand it better. Yes. If we look at Francis, as we said, he has not been too active in the last three months, uh, which is the period that we're covering in this episode. But I think it's just useful to look at some quotes of his to, again, observe how does a modernist talk? A modernist is not clear. A modernist is not straightforward. They take things that are very simple and direct concepts and sow obscurity into them. And one of these was one of these examples could be found at a general audience on October the 31st, in which Francis is commenting on the sixth commandment. First part of the quote is, who then is the adulterer, the lustful, the unfaithful one? It is an immature person who has his life for himself and interprets situations on the basis of his own well-being and his own contentment. Therefore, to get married, it's not enough to celebrate the marriage. One must undertake a journey from the I to the we. From thinking of oneself to thinking of two, from living alone to living in two. It's a good journey. It's a beautiful journey. When we decide, when we succeed in decentering ourselves, then every act is spousal. We work, we talk, we decide, we encounter others with a welcoming and oblative attitude. Not entirely certain what he's saying there, but he goes on to say, in this sense. Oh, it sounds real deep as usual, right? <laughs> yeah, it's deep in something, Father. It is deep in something, yeah. In this Uh, sense, every Christian vocation, now we can extend the perspective somewhat, and say that every Christian vocation is, in this sense, spousal. The priesthood is so because it is the call in Christ and in the church to serve a community with all the affection, concrete care, and wisdom that the Lord gives. Aspirants to the role of the priest are of no use to the church. No, they are of no use. It's best that they stay at home. But men are useful whose heart the Holy Spirit touches with a love without reservations for the bride of Christ. In the priesthood, the people of God are loved with all the paternity, the tenderness, and the strength of a husband and a father. Thus, consecrated virginity in Christ is also lived with fidelity and joy as a spousal and fecund relationship of maternity and paternity. I I, I could go on, Your Excellency and Father, but again, I'm lost. I I don't know what we're talking about here. it's, It's gobbledygook. And the uh, thing is with these these guys, as you press a, a button and random words come out in uh, uh, sort of in different uh, different order, and uh, you know you can you can flip a, uh, a lot flip a lot of them around, and then it makes uh, just as much sense 
uh, the other way. It's, it's the, the, the world of jargon. They're not interested in talking about the essence of things. They, they give you phony, uh, phony analogies and phony comparisons. You know, who then is the adulterer, the lustful, or the unfaithful one? It's an immature person. So what, what, you're, what you think when you hear some nonsense like that is uh, that, uh, well, it's, it's purely a question of immaturity, that uh, uh, there's a psychological immaturity in the adulterer that is, is, is present, and that somehow is uh, a bad consequence and is problematic. It has nothing to do with the law of God, and the fact that uh, there is a, a commandment prohibiting this, and that it's against purity and it's against uh, justice. But uh, he takes it and he uh, puts it through this uh, psychological gobbledygook filter, and this is what you end up with. And it is a, it's a typical modernist method, their typical way of discourse is to speak in this confusing way. And it, it uh, pulls people in because it eventually causes people to think that we'll, really this stuff is really deep and maybe I'm not just, just getting it uh, correctly and to buy it. But in fact, it's nonsense. And I suppose by leading with the phrase immature, he's maybe opening the door to being exculpatory by saying, well, you know, he wasn't fully mature, was, wasn't making it in good conscience, or his conscience wasn't informed when, when the reality is people understand what the Sixth Commandment means, Father, I suspect. Oh, yeah. And the immaturity business, of course, is one of the uh, grounds, for, grounds for annulment under the, the new uh, annulment procedures, that uh, you, you've taken a psychological term, a vague psychological term from the pseudoscience of psychology, and you've used it to excuse sin. Something we talked about in our last episode that uh, was that came up again in another publication was Benedict the Sixteenth uh, discussing the the role of the Jews or how the Jews have a you could say path to salvation. And there's new text from the last episode that we did, and this was this was published in, and now I'm self-conscious because of my bad German pronunciation of the last episode, so I checked it ahead of time. Um, Herder Correspondenz, the December 2018 edition, had this from Benedict XVI. The Gospel of St. Matthew ends with the commission given to the disciples to go forth into all the world and make all nations into disciples of Jesus. Missionary activity among all peoples and cultures, that is the assignment Christ has left to his followers. The point is to acquaint people with the unknown God. Man has a right to get to know God because only he who knows God can properly live his humanity. <laughs> That's why the, mis the missionary mandate is universal, with one exception. A mission to the Jews was not intended and not needed for the simple reason that they alone among all peoples already knew the unknown God. With regard to Israel, therefore, there is no mission, but only dialogue about whether Jesus of Nazareth is the son of God, the, lo the Logos, whom Israel, and without knowing it, all of humanity had been waiting, awaiting in accordance with the promises made to his people. To take up this dialogue once more is the task this hour puts before us. Now, refresh my memory, Father Chicada, but isn't the Latin omni creature that the 
that the gospel should be preached to every creature, isn't that? Uh, yeah, is, is he secretly anti-Semitic here? Is he saying that the Jews are not really human creatures? <laughs> <laughs> I remember a commentary, well, does that mean to the animals? I think that's every human creature, every yes. creature. Yeah, that's Only right. So this already is is junk theology because he's misquoting sacred scripture. He says, uh, going forth into the world and make all nations. It doesn't say all the Gentiles, disciples of Jesus. It says every creature. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, that includes the Jews. And that's exactly what they did. The first persons that were the beneficiaries of the preaching of the gospel were the Jews in Jerusalem. If they had no mission to the Jews, then why did St. Peter and the other apostles uh, go to the Jews first? And why did the Jews attempt to put them to death as a result of this preaching of the gospel? I mean, this is, this is you know, Bible studies, you know, <laughs> Pentecost Sunday. And St. Peter saying, uh, telling them that they crucified the, the you know, the Son of God, and uh, that you know, the whole speech to the Jews that's in the Acts of the Apostles. And what did Saint Paul do? Even in his, even in his mission to the Gentiles, what he did first was go to the Jewish communities of all of those those uh, cities in the East and and set up the mission. This is we set up missions, set up his his mission uh, among the Jews. And that was the reason why there was a big fight uh, uh, between the Jews and the Gentiles who had converted to Christianity because they, the, the Jews converted, but they wanted to retain some of their old ways. And so St. Paul was very clear about that, that uh, and very clear that the old law had been shut down by the, the new law and that those things were finished. And that's why he corrected St. Peter at the Council of Jerusalem uh, about his activity, whereby St. Peter had not doctrinally deviated, but he deviated in his example by eating with the Jews and spurning the Gentiles. I mean, this is basic again. This is basic. Yeah, you only get to this nonsense that Bergoglio or that that, uh, Ratzinger is talking about by uh, denying what's explicitly set down in Scripture about right. the mission of the apostles and about the conversion of the Jews, and even in the um, uh, even in the Matins readings today for the uh, the the uh, feast of the uh, feast of the Holy Name, you know that that uh, point is 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 made by Saint Peter. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given to men whereby we must be saved. Who's preaching to the Jews? Of course. Yeah. I'll give you another example. The St. Peter was so convinced of the mission to the Jews that he had to be convinced by, by a vision from God to accept Cornelius. That's in the Acts of the Apostles. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Three times the... the the vision, you know, lowered these ugly animals that the Jews considered unclean and essentially said, what I consider to be clean, you should not consider to be unclean. So as he had to be convinced beyond what was what was told to him uh, when I, before our Lord ascended. Beyond that, he had to be convinced that it was okay 
to go out go out beyond the Jews and to 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 spread the gospel to the Gentiles. You know, again, this is like third grade Bible studies. <laughs> this is not deep theology. This is you know really basic stuff. And you can see this junk theology that Ratzinger has, but you know, where everyone worships him as Mr. Smart. Don't forget, this is the same person who said back in the 1970s, early 70s, that in the early church, you could have divorce and remarriage because he misread the early church documents, which concerned second marriages. That is for people whose wife died or spouse died already. And that if you and we just did this in church history, you, you don't have to be a brain. You don't need to know classical languages or anything to read this. And it clearly is a question of second marriages for people whose spouses have died. He interpreted that to mean that if in, the, you know, in the early church, you could have divorce and remarriage. That was so stupid that later on, he retracted it and said, no, I got that wrong. But for all of those years, it was sitting in a book uh, deceiving people into the idea that in the early church, you could have divorce and remarriage. I mean, this man is a dope. But he 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 likes to show himself forth as some sort of intellectual, and he really doesn't know even the basics of Christianity, frankly. I think that phrase there, your excellency, a mission to the Jews was not intended. It's so grossly wrong. And I see uh, you, you you were quoting different examples. I thought, well, what about the epistle to the Hebrews of all pe- of all people? Yes. The Hebrews. <laughs> that would seem to Which be a mission to the Jews. Your old, your old law is shut down. <laughs> Father Chikad, I, I noticed that you chuckled particularly, and I, I thought it might have been because you this 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 phrase, this sentence sounds so so hippie-ish or maybe 60s-ish, but maybe I'm wrong. Man has a right to get to know God because only he who knows God can properly live his humanity. Yeah, you know, getting to know you, getting to know all about you. <laughs> you know, I, I think da 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 dum dum da 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 dum dum da dum dum. Uh, but the <laughs> so emphasis, emphasis on the dumb. Uh, yeah, uh, but uh, getting to know God, but then the motive for it is not salvation. It's only he who knows God can properly live his humanity. That is yeah, that, uh, so the typical. Yeah. We heard this stuff, you know, that you, you can't be fully human. See, this, this is uh, essentially humanism with the chocolate sauce of Christianity on it. You see that you can't really be a good humanist unless you have God. You see and that this was Maritain and, and integral humanism uh, that, that having God, you need God to be truly human. And, and we were that, told that was, that, the, that was uh, the, the Paul the sixth, the sixth obsession too, that it was all uh, his discourses were shot through with all of this this human this and human that stuff, you know the right. human being the uh, you know the hope for humanity, and uh, that uh, you know we above all have the cult of man all of that right. uh, all of that nonsense. I mean he pushed it, he pushed it. Right. Well, yeah, th- this uh, this is very typical. You remember Father Chicago? I don't know if you probably you do. We were contemporaries in the same situation, but about a thousand miles apart. Yeah. In the minor seminary, you know that you have to become more human. Do you remember hearing oh, that? Yeah, yeah. 
uh, the uh, I always thought, how do I become more human? What What do I do? You know, I mean, how do you become more human? Uh, but that was spirituality to become more human. And you see, God helps you to become more human. I mean, this is really a lot of you know just trash and garbage, and, and uh, you know, but people worship him as some sort of a, a you know a great theologian. So, so to be, it's, to be, it's part of the it's part of the um, modernist you know, denial of supernatural order too. It's all the, the, the you know, the, the, the natural order type of stuff. And uh, we're human and uh, we're uh, free to be human and free to be faithful and all this other nonsense. And, um, but it's, it's religion stripped of the supernatural. Well, when you, when you say religion stripped, I'm reminded of a phrase that you and His Excellency t- spoke about, probably maybe in our first season or second season of Francis Watch, uh, Monsignor Delassus, this idea of uh, Christianity without dogma, I think. Is, is that the correct phrase, Your Excellency? Well, he, he dogmaless humanitarianism. Okay. So two, two aspects. One is no dogma, and the other is humanitarianism. And that is transforming Christianity into an aid to be more human, like uh, uh, you know, to help us to have a better world and a better humanity, which is exactly Bergoglio. All of that stuff about t- keeping the earth, with treating the earth with tenderness and the refugees. And, you know, he, he is incapable of saying anything supernatural. Everything he says is about in some way helping humanity. And and it's always left wing and, and socialist and communist. That that's that's so dogmaless humanitarianism. That's exactly well, what we have. And this was said by Monseigneur de la Suisse back in the turn the turn from around 1900. Uh, he said, "This is what's coming, and this is what they intend to do to the Catholic Church. This is exactly what they've done." The the uh, Abbe de Nantes, whom you. Um uh, mentioned earlier, who uh, wrote the, the book of accusation against Paul VI, uh, he wrote quite a bit about this humanism uh, and uh, the, the humanism and naturalism in Paul VI. And the one thing that I remember him saying was that the purpose of uh, this this Paul VI revolution was to turn the church into the uh, masdu. Uh, which was the uh, French initials for the the movement for the animation of universal democracy, mm-hmm. and I thought that that was a, a a very good insight at the time. That I mean, you could uh, Paul the Six writings were shot through with that idea, and yes. um, uh, as well as the idea of of uh, Bergoglio in effect going with the the leftist. Um, a political transformation of humanity program. Yes. Well, this line of Benedict XVI seems to be echoed by a, a, I wouldn't call him a modern day Fulton Sheen, but he has a lot of media attention on various news outlets. And this gentleman, uh, so-called Bishop Robert Barron, and he was interviewed on a video, a video slash podcast by Ben Shapiro, um, who is, uh, according to Ratzinger, one of these exceptionals that uh, do not need to have the gospel preached to them. And uh, he was asking this Bishop Barons, 
whether he needed to convert to Catholicism, essentially. He said, uh, am, I, am I in a bad position by being a Jew? And Bishop Barron responds, no. The Catholic view, go back to the Second Vatican Council, which says it very clearly, I mean, Christ is the privileged route to salvation. I mean, God so loved the world, he gave his only son that we might find eternal life. So that's the privileged route. However, Vatican II clearly teaches that someone outside the Christian faith can be saved. Now, they're saved through the grace of Christ, indirectly received. So I mean, the grace is coming from Christ, but it might be received according to your conscience. So if you're following your conscience sincerely, or in your case, you're following the commandments of the law sincerely, yeah, you can be saved. Now, that doesn't conduce to a complete relativism. We We still would say the privileged route and the route that God has offered to humanity is the route of his son. But no, you can be saved. Even Vatican II says an atheist of goodwill can be saved because when I follow my conscience, I'm following him, whether I know it explicitly or not. So even the atheist, Vatican II teaches, of goodwill can be saved. Well, talk about cursing the barren fig tree. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't get any more barren than that, does it? Yeah, that's just apostasy to to say that uh, Christ is not the the savior of all mankind. That's what's implicit in that that he's the savior of everybody except the Jews, and the Jews do not need to accept him as the true savior or the true Messiah, and they can therefore be uh, justified by their own religion and their own covenant, which is no which no longer exists. All right. It's it's to say that that Judaism still has value as a religion, even after the the Christianity and the New Testament, even after the coming of the Messiah. It is a religion that was created by God in order to receive the Messiah. So, if the true Messiah has come, how could you possibly say that a religion still waiting for the true Messiah still has value in the eyes of God? You know, it, 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 it's, it's, like, uh, it's like in Europe where, where money, you know, they change the money and, and you try to spend it and they say, well, you know, this is no longer any good. Uh, I've had that a few times. It, it's, it has been, it's been changed. It's something like a caterpillar and a butterfly. In other words, the, the Old Testament was the caterpillar. And when our Lord came, the butterfly came out and it abandons its old a skin to be a butterfly. So, I mean, there's a continuity between the two things, but to, to uh, adhere to the old skin of the, of the caterpillar is, you know, it makes no sense at all. And it doesn't have any worth in the sight of God. It is, it is to reject the true Messiah. How, how could you be more offensive to God than to reject the true Messiah? And our Lord's parables to the Jews are loaded with that very subject that the, your, your vocation is going to be taken away from you because you will reject the true Messiah and you'll put him to death. You know, he's weeping over Jerusalem. I mean, it, the, the whole gospel is loaded with that. I mean, where, again, where does he get this stuff? I mean, all you have to do is read the four gospels and, and you understand that, that Judaism no longer has a value in God's sight to lead men to heaven. It does not. The other uh, underlying idea that uh, pops up here, generally is one finds in the uh, modernist teaching, uh, 
this I, uh, idea that, that, well, the Christian has the privileged route, but there are other routes that are as acceptable as well. That's like the idea of, of uh, the, the Franken church ecclesiology, where, yeah, you have in the Catholic church, <clears throat> whatever you mean by that, you have fullness and um, you have all these good things, and, but, you know, other heretical religions can be uh, means of salvation as well. And they're good, but they don't have fullness. So it's, it's basically what you pick. And that's what I see by this idea of, of uh, again, of a privileged, uh, privileged route. That uh, you know, uh, Christianity is the privileged route, but Judaism is uh, a route too, and uh, is is uh, okay in its own way. It's just such a strange, strange phrase, Father. It's again, it, it, we don't find it in any theological manual. It, it's completely uh, made up. And when I think of privileged route, I think of maybe the carpool lane. You know, that's going to be a privileged route, uh, or I won't have to pay tolls, or there won't be any potholes on my route. But, you know, you could take this other route. It goes through the mountains. It's a scenic view. It takes longer, but it's not a privileged route. And it makes mincemeat out of St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans, chapter 12, concerning the conversion of the Jews. He, he dedicates a whole chapter to talking about Judaism and and the, their ultimate conversion and all. I mean, that is meaningless if the Jews have a parallel and even privileged path to salvation alongside that of the New Testament. And that means outside of the blood of Christ, because if they are not baptized in the blood of Christ and they can still get to heaven, that is a heresy. That's a heresy. Baptism is necessary for salvation, and, and, and you cannot repudiate baptism and expect to go to heaven. You cannot. And I'm not talking about invincible ignorance or anything like that. I'm just saying objectively, you cannot repudiate baptism and expect to go to heaven. So, I mean, that, that's a, a privileged uh, path that goes off a cliff. And yes, you're you're in the fast lane, and you're in the special, you know, priority lane. But it's going to go off a cliff. Well, the coup de grace is the finish to it, where he says an atheist of goodwill can be saved, and he cites Vatican II as his backup for this. And he's supposedly yes, the, yes. this lion of orthodoxy. He's so apparently orthodox that SSPX youth are shown him shown his videos at uh, youth group meetings. And Novus Ordo Watch documented this. So uh, behold, O Israel, your gods, uh, if you're a Novus Ordo sectarian, this is a man who's representing your beliefs on a, on a televised broadcast. And he says, not only does this Ben Shapiro not need to convert, but that an atheist of goodwill can be saved. Yeah, it is impossible to be an atheist of goodwill. St. Paul says that, okay? So. <laughs> We believe in St. Paul. I don't know what these other people believe in. <laughs> well, these other people still believe that uh, Benedict XVI might be Pope, uh, Your Excellency. Yeah. There's a, a new book put out by Antonio Sochi, and there's a translated blurb from it. And again, there's a bit of a bit of the same strange, same strange language that we've been seeing all throughout this uh, broadcast today. The Church goes through the most serious crisis in its history, according to many observers. 
more questions are asked about what really happened in 2013 with the surprising renunciation of Benedict XVI, his decision to remain Pope Emeritus and the coexistence of two popes. Why had Benedict XVI become a sign of contradiction? What was happening on a geopolitical level? Who advocated a revolution within the Catholic Church? And has the Pope really resigned? These are the questions Antonio Sochi tries to answer through the facts, gestures, and words of Benedict XVI in these six years, discovering, as in an exciting thriller, he actually <laughs> remained Pope, with consequences still unexplored. In this compelling and documented investigation, we try to understand what is happening in the Vatican, but above all, it investigates the mysterious mission to which Benedict XVI has been called for the Church and for the world. The author hypothesizes that there may also be supernatural events at the origin of his choice. Then there is to decipher an ancient prophecy concerning Benedict the Sixteenth, and there is finally a new revelation that comes from Fatima that not only affects the church, but the whole world. I was thinking the mysterious mission to which Benedict the Sixteenth has been called might have been to say that the Jews don't need to be saved. Yeah, that, that's... Uh, no, well, I, I think so. is trying to sell books and get rich. Well, I, the thing I'm, is that that who's the publisher? Marvel Comics. <laughs> I mean, uh, it sounds like you know, exciting thriller. Uh, consequences still unexplored. Uh, it sounds like a Malachi Martin novel. Uh, yeah. yeah, or a Malachi Martin history book. Uh, <laughs> it's pure nonsense. I mean, he he. Sochi may say he was standing outside the outside in the hallway when something was being read, and then he can give us this big revelation. Yeah. It sells books. Yeah, uh, it's it's Malachi Martin stuff, and and it's all nonsense. It's not even worth thinking about. Well, something that I think is worth thinking about, Your Excellency, is the fact that uh, Most Holy Trinity Seminary has worked its way into Francis Watch's news feed because there was a an attack on the seminary after an article that you wrote for. <laughs> The listeners who may not be familiar with His Excellency's really uh, excellent articles on his blog about this, I, I think you must have been cogitating on it for a while, Your Excellency, because the Me Too movement was really a, a, a big thing last year. So I'm glad that you finally took the time to address it. But could you brief our listeners on what your position was in the article and then what happened in response? It was essentially this theme that... Of course, the uh, you know it's terrible that women are assaulted, absolutely, and men are mostly to be blamed. But that there, in many cases, there is a partial blame to be placed on ladies who don't dress properly and whose behavior is improper around men, and that this is quite common in the workplace. Also, a lot of these victims are people who work in, in show business and in the sports uh, you know, world where there's, you know, in the show business is not known for ch chastity and purity. I mean, if you're in show business, you practically have to leave your chastity at the door, you know, and rather expect what's going to happen. And in you know in sports, these people that play sports get very aggressive and 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 think that they're like gods and they can do anything. And it, and with all of the uh, modern feminism, where women are in the workplace and interacting with men every day, there's bound to be uh, more of this. And and it's partially because of the dress and behavior of women. So conclusion, I said. 
uh, women should dress modestly in order that they they not be uh, an occasion of any of this that is happening. Now, all of that is in accordance with Catholic morality and Catholic moral theology. There's not a single thing that I said there that is contrary to it, and there's not a single thing that is historically incorrect. The before, especially before World War II, I mean, women in the workplace were relatively rare. I think I recall, uh, I said it in another show, that my mother, who worked for uh, W.T. Grant, which was like a, a predecessor of, of Walmart, you know, in a way, not, not really, but, you know, that one of those big stores that sold everything. Uh, she worked there. I think she was uh, in her late teens or maybe perhaps early 20s. Uh, in in the late 1930s, and she said that the girls had to keep their engagement rings hidden because they would be fired because it was thought at the time that it was not good that married women be in the workplace. Now, I mean, that's history. I mean, that's not. I'm not even commenting on that. That's just a fact. All right. And, but it does show that there was a, a, a sentiment at the time that this was a dangerous thing. And, and uh, now that, of course, is people would laugh at that today and say, oh, that was terrible, that was horrible. But I'm just showing that you know, how things have changed within really one or two generations. And the, so, uh, of course, I said all of these. I didn't give that example, but I said the you know, women should dress modestly. That's all I said. And well, you know, then there was this, uh, I got uh, messages on the phone that were uh, loaded with F-bombs and S-bombs and that I was disgusting and, uh, you know, all of this really intellectual activity going on, you know, uh, and uh, the, that uh, you know, no one, not a single person responded with, here's why you're wrong, you know, here, here's a calm uh, uh, assessment of why you're wrong. No one. It, it's always, oh, you're horrible. I remember when I did put up the the a similar article about Kavanaugh that, according to Catholic moral theology, his word would prevail. You know, in in in, in parity. In other words, where it's his word against hers. That because he's a federal judge, his, his word is superior to hers, and that therefore, in in, in the in the equality of of the testimony, you'd have to go with him. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I got all sorts of horrible comments. Again, no one saying why. I think two people out of about thirty or more were calm and criticized me in a, in a decent way. Everybody else was f bombs and s bombs. And and uh, the uh, w- one lady called and said they're going to put a private eye on me. <laughs> and I, my reaction was, well, I hope you do because you're not going to find anything that's very interesting about what I do. <laughs> Probably the biggest excitement is going to Lowe's or going to the bank. You know, uh, you know, th- those are the big things. The the pet store maybe to get some cat food. I mean, if someone were to follow me around, uh, they would probably fall asleep. <laughs> occasional ride out to fedex is another really well, exciting thing you you you, know, the, you had some problems with the website is to you to your excellency we correct hacked. yes our website was hacked and we had to pay a good deal of money to uh, get it secure it's okay now but one of the blessings of it is that we're going to completely redesign our website 
uh, in a way that will make it even more secure. So the uh, and our website it needs some re- redesigning, and so it's it's a blessing in disguise. But it tells me, you know, about the intolerant left. As I said, this, you know, what happened to freedom of speech? This country works on tolerance of a whole bunch of other people because it's such a mix of cultures and religions and ideas and, you know, everything. If, if that stops, if that tolerance stops, and if that decency toward people who disagree with you stops, you're going to see a country that's going to break apart. And that did almost, it almost broke apart in, in the 19th century because people became hotheads about others who disagreed with them, both, both on the north and on the south side. Brooksville is named for Senator Brooks, who, after some fanatic from Boston in the Senate gave a speech against the south, and the hothead from the north gave a speech from the south, Senator Brooks went over with his cane and nearly beat him to death with his cane in the Senate. And I learned that Brooksville was named for that because there were a lot of people that moved down from South Carolina, where he was the senator, to Florida in the 1860s. And they renamed this, which I think was called Augusta. They renamed it Brooksville in honor of him. <laughs> That's to show you how they felt about him. Uh, this was after the war. And, and, you know, the, the country almost broke up over that hot-headedness and that intolerance. And it, it to me, it shows a, a renewal of, of a, you know, a, and all those Antifa uh, riots and people covering their faces and beating up people and all. That's a very bad portent for the future to me. Because I didn't say anything that was, I didn't attack anybody or, it was just, this is what I think about the Me Too movement. You know, I, I think it's, it's a very bad sign for the future of this country. I really do. Yeah, we, we, we had some one-star reviews on Facebook. Um, and we had thought to say, well, uh, we are not the Bishop's website, but we thought, well, we're associated with the Bishop, so we're happy to take the one-star reviews anyway. But I think people just were searching for your name, and it came up in some of our Facebook promotions of some of your articles or or sermons and they just wrote these nasty comments and we had to go in there and delete a lot of them because they were right. just not respectful one one other right. thing i would add your excellency you said at the beginning that you know you just repeated the uh standard uh moral teaching standard teaching of catholic uh, moral theology and uh, at um you know, one point in the history of society, obviously, that uh, even among non-Catholics, the uh, need for uh, modesty in, in women's dress was seen as as, as something that is uh, a, a, a value that a decent person observes. So, uh, yes. but but then beyond that, that that immodest dress is uh, provokes people. The People who deny that that modern fashions, uh, the 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 uh, bulk of modern women's fashions are dedicated towards stirring up lust and stirring up desire. I mean, what kind of world, bizarre world, are you living in? Because if you you just look at the covers of the fashion magazines at the the airport, that is the, uh, always the point. That's what's being sold on the covers, to make yourself sexually desirable. 
And the idea is that the, the, the dress in such a way that it stirs up lust and that this is now a positive value in society because it uh, reinforces how uh, formerly oppressed women, how they now feel about themselves. So the thing is that, that uh, you, in effect, were getting, uh, I, I think what, what really steamed people is the fact that uh, the people who criticized you recognized that what you said was true. That in fact the the uh, the purpose of um, the, so many modern fashions and so many modern styles for women is precisely to do that to uh, entice others to desire. Mm-hmm. So the, it's, got, it's, it's it's a, it's a whole it's a hypocritical uh, it's a whole hypocritical criticism that yeah. um, I mean these uh, these women that up. wear wear dresses that show off their breasts so much now, you wonder why bother putting on the dress? Why not just, you know, go topless? <laughs> and, and uh, you know, you'd have to be insane not to say that is, that is, uh, to say it's, it's not going to incite a man. Again, and I also pointed out that after the 1960s, everybody has lost his inhibitions. Yeah. The men are unchained. Uh, you were told to follow your instincts, you know, like yeah. Clinton, you know, just following my natural instincts. That, that was what he said after the whole thing in 1998. It was just following my natural instincts. Yeah. But th- this is the culture, you know, that you just do what, you, what you're moved to do. Uh, I would compare it to uh, uh, walking through a high crime area with a pot of gold coins. Right? <laughs> yeah. And if, you know, somebody came up to you and shoved you aside and, and ran away with the pot of gold coins, what would any reasonable person say to you? Well, what did you, why did you do such a crazy thing? Of course you're going to get, uh, get robbed in a neighborhood like that where there's high crime. You know, or a woman, you know, work, walking around in a high crime area with an emerald necklace on that costs yeah. maybe $50,000. Well, somebody's going to come up and rip it off her, her neck. And, and then this, well, of course, what do you expect? <laughs> you know, but if she had been, say, at a very high society place where there was a lot of protection and people were decent and somebody did that, they would not blame her at all because she would, took all of the proper precautions to protect herself. And it's it's all very analogical to wearing a a lascivious dress uh, in public and in places where where men have have no inhibitions. If you're interested in reading His Excellency's article in full, you can go to inveritateblog.com and find the article. It was from November of last year. Speaking of extreme reactions, something that had happened since our last episode too was that a Chicago Novus Ordo priest had to flee. He's now in an undisclosed location. He might be there with Vigano and Elvis and other people. <laughs> um, but the the crime, his crime, Your Excellency, was was burning the rainbow flag. Yeah. I know, which which was a perfectly legitimate thing to do because it represents uh, sodomy. It represents the glorification of sodomy. Which is even worse than sodomy itself, the the public glorification of it and justification of sodomy. 
uh, which is a crime that that uh, is very offensive to God and which was punished by the destruction of Sodom. And by the way, there's a recent uh, archaeological dig that shows that Sodom was was in fact destroyed by fire and brimstone. And uh, the um, uh, so in any case, that it was a perfectly virtuous thing to do. And which should be done by every Catholic uh, hierarch, uh, but uh, I guess uh, that was not the the uh, you know it was politically incorrect to say the not, least. Not only that, Supic asked him to report for psychiatric counseling. Right. Well, it, it must I think be crazy that, you know, to to do such a thing. Apparently, you know, the Mundelein Seminary doesn't have a lot of uh, let's say uh, credibility. I mean that that's the seminary of Chicago. I think that Chicago might might be fairly well infected by a certain group. Are you saying that they might have they, they, they might have been burning the the flag of the seminary? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, I'm saying that Chicago is well known for let's say sympathies toward uh, Sodom. Mm. Well, with Supic in charge and this man on the run. It seems as though, again, the, the extreme reaction to the truth that you put forth in your article, that there is a, a forcible reaction to this. And they're at a subconscious level, they, they know that there is something wrong. And so they have to react in a strong, irrational way. And we're seeing the same thing here in Chicago that we saw in reaction to your article. The uh, uh, other thing that I'd like to point out about this um, uh, priest in Chicago is the idea that he should go and get psychiatric help. I mean, that is a typical modernist trick that uh, they will, modernists will tell you if you criticize something as immoral or as contrary to Catholic doctrine, they will say that there's something psychologically wrong with you. They played that card uh, time and time and time again after Vatican II. And the, uh, it's the same method as uh, Stalin and and uh, his successors had in the Soviet Union, that if you were a dissident, if you said something wrong about the uh, what the Soviet government was doing, you'd be shipped off to a place called the Serbsky Institute and for some re-education, or uh, you would be in, in China till the uh, till now, even as as we speak, that people are sent off for uh, re-education to uh, re-education camps to get them to think uh, correctly. Uh, in mm-hmm. They're sent out to the, the, these uh, camps in the west of China. So this is a typical leftist uh, type of move that uh, Supic is um, uh, pulling off. And he, he's walking in the footsteps of, uh, you know, the post-Vatican II modernists and uh, certainly in, in the... Um, footsteps of the communists as well. Well, you don't even need to be sent off to a re-education camp, Father. Sometimes you can just be handed a white cassock and a malaria shot. And that, <laughs> you well, that's can, in the Pius X society, Steve. You, you can yes. be sent to go think correctly uh, somewhere else. Yeah, I think so. The, uh, the, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll speak a little bit about that. Uh, Your Excellency and, and Father have both discussed this Sino-Vatican Accord on at least two previous episodes we just have, a, I would say, they're minor news items because they're they're not really they haven't really been reported, but they have pretty major portent. One is that two 
underground bishops have been asked to step down by Francis and they have obeyed. And two Marian shrines have been demolished. And that these are the results of the great deal that uh, that Bergoglio has signed. And I guess at this point, you're, you're actually even, even on the natural level, so stepping back from the supernatural level, can, what natural good has come from this deal that uh, the Vatican signed with China? Natural good? Uh, I, I long for the good old days when the United States didn't even recognize China as a nation before Nixon went over there. I mean, this is a brutal regime, anti-Catholic, anti-decency. It, it, uh, you know, it's, it's a Stalinist evil regime. And the United States, we couldn't, there was no trade between China and the United States because the idea was to starve them out essentially and to bring down the regime by keeping them in, in, a, in a state that was, was you know, economically unbearable. And, and Pius XII condemned this, this state-run church and, and even excommunicated uh, anyone who would uh, claim to be a diocesan bishop in this state-run church. So this is caving in entirely to this awful, awful regime uh, that is uh, now threatening the whole world. Uh, and uh, is becoming quickly our enemy. They're going to be a, you know, our arch enemy if they not, are not already within 10, 15, 20 years. And, uh, and we are the ones that built them up by all of that trade and if, uh, all, setting up all the factories over there and, and making them a, a viable nation economically. We are responsible for that. And and uh, it, and this is just a, a, a sideshow of it in a sense that that, uh, that this acceptance of that horrid communist regime in China, and and of course, but you know, Bergoglio is a communist, so you know, I guess he doesn't object to this, and and the you know that you have a communist regime inculcating humanistic communistic ideas for him is fine. It's just a very different perspective from when Pius XII reacted to the actions of China with excommunication. It seems as though, I mean, where did Francis get the idea to ask these two bishops to get to step down? Did he know them personally? Is he very familiar with the church in China that he felt he uh, that they were incompetent? Yes, he was, he, was, he was told what to do and he did it. It's just a, it's just such a strange thing that, in a certain sense, the Chinese have achieved exactly what they wanted. They are the head of the church in China. And they tell the Bishop of Rome what to do, the so-called Bishop Why of Rome. Why are you surprised? I'm wondering what, what the, the, uh, the, di the diplomatic chess is behind such, such an agreement. What natural good is he getting? Obviously, there's supernatural betrayal of the faith. But there must, even in the natural order, there would seem to be some reason for this treaty. But when I see things like, like this, like shrines being demolished and, and bishops being stabbed in the back, it's just out in the open. I mean, I, as you raise the question, I can't think of anything. What, uh, as you say, even from the natural point of view, what um, Bergoglio and company are uh, hoping to gain, because the the persecution of those who are, uh, uh, you know, who at least try to be Catholics is something that's uh, going to continue. That's not going to uh, let up. Uh, he's just simply sold out to them. 
And, you know, because he's a, uh, because he is a communist and a socialist, he's not exactly, uh, maybe he's not exactly the same type of communist or socialist as the members of the, the uh, Politburo are in uh, Peking. But, you know, as we always say, it's sort of like gangsters. They, they all have uh, uh, different ideas and different uh, agendas. But it's, it's a, a, it ends up being a complete sellout with absolutely no benefit. Unless there's some monetary consideration, maybe you never know. Yeah, could be. Or maybe, maybe they're getting they're getting uh, uh, cheap athletic shoes to sell in the uh, Vatican shop or something like that. Or, or, or better yet, free iPhones or something. Yeah, free iPhones. Yes. Uh, this because in a certain sense they're in the front the front line. Even even in the the Novus Ordos, these are this is a regime that's hostile to Catholicism. In whatever form it sees, you know, here in Europe, the governments don't care anymore whether whether you believe in a certain sense or not. But in China, they still really do, and they will come after you for believing the faith. So, this this uh, this treaty to me thinks is totally unintelligible. This is the country in which it is illegal for priests to let those under eighteen into the church. You can't even attend mass if you're not eighteen years old. Mm. Well, that was enforced under this new treaty. Yes. Yeah. And if you recall, the the person who went there to set up the whole thing came back and said, China has has a truly Catholic social order. (laughs) I mean, this is how bad it is. (laughs) That's what he said. Yeah. Yeah. This is how bad it is. Well, speaking of how bad it is, Your Excellency, the the last item that I want to talk about today was the first official interview of the new Superior General of the Society of St. Pius X, Father Pagliarani. And he had a couple quotes which I found very interesting, but to me indicate that meet, meet new boss, same as old boss. He said, on relations with Rome, there is one public official clear source, which still imposes on us statements with essentially the same doctrinal contents, and two, the other one that emanates from one or another member of the Curia with interesting private exchanges containing new elements about the relative value of the council, about this or that point of doctrine. These are new and interesting discussions, which should certainly be pursued, yet nevertheless remain informal, unofficial, private discussions, whereas on the official level, despite a certain evolution of language, the same demands are always repeated. So he says there is a public official clear source which still opposes, uh, imposes on us statements with the same doctrinal contents. And then he goes on to say, but I've got some buddies in the Curia who tell me otherwise. But we, we, yeah. can't, talk, we can't talk about that publicly. <laughs> yeah, that's the uh, Roman whispers business. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we used to get that... Um, with Lefebvre, too, that, you know, that, that uh, there'd be these different Roman whisper stories about, uh, you know, Monsignor Spadafora uh, and uh, Monsignor Pintanello and, uh, you know, that I talk with this cardinal and the curia, etc. And that's simply to uh, string people along, as far as I'm concerned, because they're, they're in, um, I don't know, it seems that they're, they're, 
sort of back like flies in amber again, uh, that they're, they're in the same situation with regard to the Vatican as they were before, and things are just sort of carrying on in the same crazy never-never-land way. Yeah, and it's their way of showing their people that they are submitted to Rome. You see, they're talking to these, to the Curia, and they're trying to get this approved, you know, and trying to be lifted up to the point of recognition that they mm-hmm. deserve. And this is ongoing. And you see, we are submitted to Rome and Rome and Rome. And we have these whispers in the Vatican hallways. And, uh, and it, it, you know, it's this charade that, that they present to everybody. And it's all part of it. And what, what is 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 one public official clear source which still imposes on us statements with essentially the same doctrinal contents. Well, isn't that the purpose of the of the Roman Pontiff and of the Vatican to impose upon us doctrinal contents? Isn't that don't they have the right to do? I, I, I was fascinated by the giveaway in this language here, Your Excellency, because he says it's at a public official clear source. So he's identified what you know. This is the the source and then imposes on us meaning tells us to do it and what that means is you're refusing the imposition if you say that this is one thing that is being imposed he uses the language imposes on us doctrinal contents who are you to refuse the imposition of doctrinal contents yes well if you're the the vicar of christ on earth in in menzingen you know that's that's you can refuse what the holy father says to you and imposes upon you that word impose, in other words, this is not, you know, some sort of give and take or you know, let's discuss this, imposes upon us statements. Because we have to sign something that yeah. we refuse to sign. That's what that was essentially saying. <laughs> no encounter or accompaniment there. <clears throat> uh, it's just the imposition. Right. You know, it, this is it. Sign it and we'll be okay. Which, is, it, which means that they have to accept Vatican II the way everybody else does. So in the, in the same interview that he gives, he goes on to say, the priestly Society of St. Pius X is deeply attached to the successor of Peter, <laughs> even when it opposes the errors of the Second Vatican Council. Okay, this, this first statement is problematic. He goes on, however, we are deeply distraught by a fundamental characteristic of the current pontificate, a completely new application of the concept of mercy. It is reduced to a panacea for all sins without pushing for a true conversion the transformation of the soul by grace, mortification, and prayer. In his post-synodal apostolic exhortation, Amoris Laetitia, the Pope gives all Christians the possibility to decide case by case, according to their personal conscience, the questions of morality and marriage. This totally contradicts the necessary and clear orientation given by God's law. We see here an echo of Luther's spirituality, a Christianity without the need for moral renewal, a subjectivism that no longer recognizes any universally valid truth, this has caused deep confusion among the faithful and the clergy. Every man is in search of truth, but for this, he needs the direction of the priest, just as a pupil needs the direction of a teacher. And I suppose just as a Catholic needs the direction of the vicar of Jesus Christ on earth, your excellency. Well, uh, you know, he's saying that, that the Pope is a heretic. <laughs> you know, that this totally contradicts the necessary and clear orientation given by God's law. That means that the Pope is a heretic with regard to moral doctrine, that he is teaching moral heresy. And then the name Luther comes up. I mean, he just confirms exactly what he just said, that this is essentially the Lutheran idea of morality. 
I mean, what else do we need to say? <laughs> that I uh, suppose that that very first statement here, Your Excellency, sort of gives us gives us the the orientation of of the SSPX. This double think that you have to have. The Priestly Society of Saint Pius X is deeply attached to the successor of Peter, even when it opposes the errors of the Second Vatican Council. Well, who, who promulgated the documents of the Second Vatican Council? St. Paul VI, who you have decided is not a saint. Yes, change it to he. <laughs> In other words, what is it to the successor of St. Peter, even when it, who's it? <laughs> what, what are we talking about here? The successor of Peter is not a robot. So there's the, uh, maybe it's referring to the Society of St. Pius X, but it's the same thing, you know, that, that they sift and, and uh, you know, he's the Pope, uh, but we, we don't pay attention to him when, when he says something wrong. And, you know, he's infallible except when he's wrong. And, and all, all of that nonsensical idi- idiocy that comes out of their mouths all, for decades now. What was fascinating about Father Pagliarani for me, Your Excellency and Father, was recently we were, our annual meeting for True Restoration was uh, in Verua Savoia this year near the IMBC. We want to make sure that we, we meet as many clergy as possible. And Father Juni told us that some years ago, Father Pagliarani uh, came to the Institute and was seeking to potentially come into the Institute before he was uh, sent to India to think about things for a while. And uh, just like Father Paul Robinson uh, has become somewhat of a superstar in the American district for the SSPX and also had some, let's say, encounter in the past, that this man is now in charge of the SSPX but had come to the Institute just some years ago. Mm-hmm. He, he must have uh, some clue about what's going on here. Yeah, I, I don't. I really don't know the man, so I, I can't comment too much. But that is interesting that he did do that. Uh, there means that there's some thinking going on in his head. At least I would say this: that that he has a brain because when he speaks, he speaks intelligibly, and you understand what he's saying. When his uh, predecessor spoke, it was all gobbledygook, and you had the slightest idea what he meant or what he said. I mean, he would have made, you know, a perfect government minister, you know, where you, you just talk and nothing comes out except you know, unintelligible nonsense. Uh, at least he, he it's clear what he says. I mean, you can understand what he says, <laughs> which I would, you know, I'd say that's an improvement for the SSPX, <laughs> that the superior general has a brain. <laughs> Do you have anything to add, Father? <laughs> That's an awful funny comment, <laughs> an improvement that you have a superior general who, who has a brain. Um, the, uh, no, it's, it's, um, uh, it's more of the same, more of the same attitude. Uh, and, um, you know, he's a, uh, he is a little clearer, a little more comprehensible, but it's in expressing the same confusing uh, and uh, erroneous theology of the Society of St. Pius X. So I don't think that that it represents any sort of a substantial change in what they're up to at this point. Yeah, remember Father Chikata said, and this is more topical, that even when they go to Mars and there's like a, a, a whole colony on Mars, there's still going to be 
uh, trying to uh, cut a deal with the Vatican. You know, this will be like a hundred years from now, and <laughs> they'll have a mission up Mars, and we're still trying to cut a deal with the Vatican. Uh, it, you know, it's the it's like a movie that never ends and and repeats the same scene over and over again. Uh, yes, and I mean, we, I think we pointed that out uh, during was it. Uh, was it uh, 2014 during uh, one of the when we, when we did the fat lady, um, uh, the fat lady <laughs> post about how how the fat lady never sings. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, in, in other words, that the opera never seems to uh, come to an end. She keeps uh, you know on threatening to come out onto the stage, but I guess never finally does. So it just just <laughs> keeps on uh, keeps on circulating. He's like Filet, he's, uh, you know, still milking the uh, Roman cow. uh, And he he doesn't have to feed it by, uh, uh, you know, the sense of giving anything up by actually obeying. So, you know, it's it's a uh, it's a beneficial situation for him to uh, to be in the center of that, because uh, you draw people from uh, from both sides. You draw people from all the way from, say, the the Rorate type of uh, Novus Order conservatives, all the way to, well, you know, maybe you get some people in there who are state of contest who are figuring, well, it's all going to turn out all right. And it, it keeps on going. And, and uh, because you have no real operating principles, you just, uh, you just act, and you say things that that could go rightwards or or leftwards, it's still the um, uh, goose that lays the golden egg. You know, it's a very successful formula uh, that they've come up with. And uh, you know, why spoil that? Why having to? Why you know, uh, having to pay for feeding the cow? Well, Your Excellency and Father, we're through perhaps the busiest time of the Christmas season, perhaps Your Excellency could tell us uh, what's going on at the seminary. Absolutely nothing. And I'm so happy about it because nearly everyone has gone home. (laughs) I should mention that one of our seminarians from France, he's our only one from France now, uh, is seriously ill. He, uh, it's something that he said, you know, he's been feeling for even two years, but it's gotten uh, acute lately, uh, and that is gastrointestinal problems, uh, you know, chronic and so bad that it keeps him up at night, and so he's been missing class. He's uh, been showing up late in the morning. You know, he couldn't go to mass, and uh, then it affected his heart. His heart uh, rate went very low into the 30s. And one day it was even 23, and we had to rush him to the hospital. Uh, 23 is really dangerous. And we had to rush him to the hospital. And uh, so uh, he's he got a little better in the past uh, 10 days, say, but he's back in France now, and he's going to be uh, you know looked at in France. He really needs a diagnosis of his intestinal problems, et cetera. Uh, but... Uh, I'm certain that he's lost the year, and I fear terribly that he he will lose his ability to be a priest because his health is not good unless they come up with a very clear cure for what he's got. It could be an intestinal obstruction of some type, but 
the point is, please pray for this person because he's a very, very good vocation. Because he's very intent upon being a priest, and he has all of the qualities of being a good priest. And we're just devastated. Uh, he was supposed to be ordained a subdeacon at the end of February, and then a deacon in June, and then priesthood uh, in the following June in 2020. Uh, and so, if you know, if if he's impeded by this problem, uh, it's a disaster for us, for him, for the church, for France. Uh, he he would be a very very effective priest, and I just pray to God that he makes it. As you say, you're actually, he's a he's a he's a good vocation. He's also very French, and uh, the French <laughs> the French need more yeah. very French clergy. <laughs> yes, he would be perfect in his home country. Now, that brings us to Father Duterte, who is being very active now in Quebec and has a, a, a strong following in both Quebec City and in Montreal. And uh, he's building it up. And he's, uh, uh, as he said, they have adopted him and he has adopted them. You know, they, they feel comfortable with him and he with them. And he says he's very busy. He says mass there three Sundays a month. There is another priest, uh, Father Roy, R-O-I, which means king, uh, who uh, comes in from New Brunswick. He's ex-SSPX, but he's affiliated with no one. He's just on his own, and uh, he's a saint of a cantist and comes in and says Mass on the off Sunday, which is the third Sunday. And so that's what's happening up there in Quebec. So it's moving along uh, well, and uh, it's as cold as could be (laughs) up there. But he's fine, and uh, so I'm. You know, it was really something that we weren't counting on, uh, but it developed, uh, and uh, there was uh, a lot of people up there that needed a lot of direction and and the mass more often than they were getting it. They were getting a spotty mass now and again from various clergy, and uh, so their theological ideas were not very well formed. Uh, it was just Latin mass, you know. That was it, and uh, so. Uh, so we're very pleased with the progress of that. And then Father, here I'm saying, you know, there's no news here. Uh, Father uh, Palma uh, out in Arizona. Now, he's not, he, he's not really seminary, but he was from the seminary. Uh, he just bought a building uh, that he will transform into a church uh, in the northwest sector. Uh, uh, it's uh, a place called Youngtown, which is next to Peoria. In Arizona, so that's a little, uh, um, um, you know, progress for us. And uh, so, uh, and then, uh, but as far as the seminary, as I said, the seminary is always the same. Uh, and we we teach courses. They have exams. We feed the cat. You know, that that's about you know life at the seminary. <laughs> That's not necessarily the order of importance. I was going to say no. the cat. The cat feeding is the first order of importance for the cat. Feeding <laughs> the cat, keeping after the cats. Keeping them happy is the first order of business at the seminary, <laughs> and the rest, you know, is, is quite secondary. Uh, I have a sneaking suspicion that is the same order uh, at St. Gertrude's. Uh, uh, you, um, you certainly could say they're, they're very, very demanding animals. So uh, <laughs> they, they uh, uh, you know, as the Arthur Miller play said, when the cat, uh, the attention must be paid. Um, <laughs> Here at St. Gertrude's, uh, there's been a fair amount of stuff going on. We, of course, had Bishop Dolan's 25th uh, uh, Episcopal Consecration anniversary, 
And that was at the end of uh, the month of November in the Feast of St. Andrew. We had um, uh, priests from different parts of the country who visit, visited. Um, Bishop Sanborn gave a uh, uh, excellent sermon on uh, Bishop Dolan's apostolate over the past 25 years. I also on fatherchicada.com uh, put up a um, little resume of um, uh, how Bishop Dolan came to be consecrated as bishop and uh, what he's done since uh, his consecration in 1993. Uh, so that was a very big, um, uh, very, uh, very big occasion. We had a splendid uh, pontifical high mass, beautifully sung by the choir and a very nice uh, reception, people from all over the country. And we had the uh, uh, Gertrudian Advent, uh, kind of, of um, uh, quiet, but with uh, uh, different novenas and naturally with uh, different devotions. We've begun the um, 12 Sundays of Our Lady of Good Counsel, and we have uh, some particular devotions to her, and we chant an antiphon in her honor after, um, these, uh, after 12 of the Sunday High Masses. We had um, uh, Christmas, a uh, uh, very good crowd at all the Christmas masses, uh, a splendid midnight mass, and then this coming um, this coming Sunday, Bishop Selway, we invited him to uh, come up. He hadn't had an opportunity to celebrate mass and to preach for a congregation up here since his con- his uh, consecration last. Um, uh, February. So uh, this coming Sunday, the Feast of the Epiphany, uh, he's going to be up to celebrate Pontifical Mass and to preach, and we have a little reception for him uh, after that. Uh, the uh, other um, uh, future things on my uh, plan, um, I'm uh, going down to the seminary as usual in, in January. Later that month, Bishop Dolan is going down for uh, the seminarian's retreat. Uh, he's uh, also going down in the month of February to uh, Brazil uh, to uh, uh, a group of uh, St. Evacantus uh, uh, priests and religious that we uh, uh, came into contact with down there. And he's very um, hopeful and very optimistic for uh, Brazil. We got uh, good reports from Father uh, Nkamake who is uh, back in Nigeria now, uh, tending to his uh, all of the missions he takes care of, which are, um, uh, you know, it's a very, very impressive apostolate. He has two Nigerian seminarians at um, Most Holy Trinity, and uh, they seem to be intelligent men and, and, um, uh, and good vocations. So it's a, a little bit of what's going on at St. Gertrude the Great. Uh, in July, we have um, we fixed a date for the YAG, the young adults get together, and we will. Um, if you're on our mailing list, you'll be getting notices about that. I think that's in in early July. Uh, we've had um, uh, I think at least two marriages come from uh, our uh, the, the past YAGs, and there are a couple more that I can sort of envision being on the um, uh, horizon or about to be announced fairly soon. So that's working out very nicely as a part of our apostolate. So we ask that you uh, keep that in your prayers. And I I add to what Bishop Sanborn said about uh, this uh, French seminary, please do uh, keep him 
uh, in your prayers. He's a, uh, a very good young man, and we think a very good vocation. And we certainly pray for his cure. And I think that's an excellent way for us to end the episode. As always, Your Excellency, thank you for your time. Thank you, Father, for your time. Thank you. And we thank our sponsor, Novus Ordo Watch, for making this episode available to the public. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.